Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host today, Mina Lay. Host today and every day. I keep saying host today as if someone else is going to take over next week. But no, um, unfortunately, you're all stuck with me. So slow news cycle this week, honestly. Like I was trying to cat on top of the news, um, or I guess like I should say the pop culture news because they don't really talk about actual news that um, (laughs) really matters to uh, the state of the world. But um, yeah, I've been trying to keep up reading The Cut, New Yorker, Atlantic, my three favorite publications, um, Vice, Vox, ID, but honestly, not much has piqued my fancy this week. So that's just a disclaimer um, for the direction of this episode, which is clearly directionless as usual um, with these kind of episodes, but even more so this week. I do want to talk about some substance though, because last episode I was talking about social media addiction and just using social media as procrastination, feeling FOMO about not being on social media. And I asked you all for tips and I did get some nice emails um, sharing some strategies that I thought I would share with everyone. I haven't necessarily tried any of these out, but I think also when it comes to any kind of like getting offline strategy, it really depends on the person and their own, you know, their own, their own mind, their own brain, their own process. So maybe some of these things will work for you. I think I'm going to try Well, you know, we'll go through it together and then I'm going to pick some things that I'm going to try. Maybe you'll pick different ones and maybe we can challenge ourselves for the the week. Okay, so one suggestion that I got multiple times was moving apps off of the home screen. So uh, I think if you have an iPhone, I'm not sure how this works on an Android. I'm sure there's probably a similar function, but if you have an iPhone, you can delete an app but there's like options so you can delete it permanently off your phone or you can like remove the app from your home screen so that if you want to access the app, you have to like actually type it into your search bar. Um, So it it makes it a two-step process versus before you could just, you know, flip up your phone and press your thumb in whatever magically appears. You're magically on your app. You have no idea how you got here. It was just an impulse. So um, taking away that quick reaction time. I guess the idea is that you have to think about it a little bit more before you actually, you know, get into Instagram or get onto TikTok. And you have a couple seconds more to decide whether or not you actually want to use those apps. I have tried implementing this like a while ago. And honestly, it doesn't really work for me because um, I'll just get used to searching for the app. And then the app just comes up in my Siri suggestions. Uh, So bad Siri. But that kind of like takes away the um, extra struggle of having to type out the app, which is unfortunate, but it might work for you. Um, Another suggestion I got was to turn notifications off for all social media, deactivating in cycles. So rather than deleting apps, you can deactivate your account for like a month at a time and then come back. So just like taking more breaks. And the person who wrote this in, they said that they deactivate for like a full month because it's embarrassing to deactivate and then come back like super soon. Another suggestion was to use social media intentionally. So this was an interesting one because this person suggested that you should try to schedule or like try to make time to scroll 
because a lot of us get into this habit of just picking up our phones whenever we're doing other chores or I know for me, I have a bad habit of like using my phone in the shower, which Ugh, it's so bad. Honestly, I'm very embarrassed about that because I've literally done that for years. Like even before iPhones were technically waterproof. So I've like damaged the speakers of my old phones because of this habit. And I would have to like stick it in rice overnight. Ugh, you know, terrible. But yeah, I was just like reach for my phone in the shower. And I think my mentality is that when I'm in the shower, it's like it's productive. Like I'm doing something but I also like want to look at my phone and so I don't feel as bad looking at my phone because I'm combining it with doing an activity that I need to do for the day versus if I'm trying to work and then I pick up my phone, then I'm like using my phone as a uh, distraction from doing my work. So the phone in the shower is like a multitasking type of thing. Obviously like not great still even with that reframing because why do I need to be on my phone in the shower in the first place but so yeah if you find yourself in a position where you're just like reaching for your phone kind of mindlessly while you're doing other things this person suggests like letting yourself actually use your phone when you want to but just be mindful of the fact that you are on your phone until you feel like the need to use your phone has been satiated And then you can, you know, put your phone away. Um, And they compare it to intuitive eating, which is like when you're really aware that you're eating and you're not doing anything, anything else, you're just like fully immersed in the act of eating. Um, So yeah, I think, I think this is like something that could potentially work for me. I'll try it out and let you guys know. So um, another suggestion was to be more intentional about ways to stay in the loop. So, you know, in the last episode, I was talking about how I feel like being a content creator, which I, I have qualms about that term, but, you know, I am what I am. Um, so being a content creator, I feel like I have to be on top of what's happening. And so this person was validating of that. Thank you. And they said that I should try to be intentional about like the specific platforms I use or maybe instead of like reaching for Twitter to get my news I listen to a podcast that covers like pop culture if you know I really want to know about uh, the pop culture of the week some other methods here um checking apps on your laptop because the design of these social media apps on your laptop are much worse and so there's like the idea that you won't be on it as long as if you open the app on your phone um Screen Zen, which is an app that helps limit your apps. So I've actually used this before. I don't know why I stopped using it. That's my own fault. It did work for the the period of time I was using it, but it's this app that limits the amount of times you can open an app within a few days. Like it'll tell you like on your screen when you click on an app, like you have four more opens left for today. And then um, you could also just try to set your own daily limit if you have the uh, mental fortitude to do that. So this person suggested like saying no apps till after 3 p.m. And, you know, they actually said something here that I think is really valid. They wrote, it's crazy how you can catch up on all the hottest discourse of the whole week in less than an hour. That is so true. I feel like I'm always getting into this like loop of refreshing my feed 
seeing if something new is going to happen, like trying to get that new like notification dopamine hit when really like it doesn't matter if I'm checking every 30 seconds for an hour or if I just check once on the hour, I'm still getting all that news. It's just like I'm spending less time because I'm not refreshing if I just check in intervals. I don't know why I didn't do this. Like I obviously know why because it like satisfies my little rat brain to keep hitting that button. Um, If you don't know this experiment, I forget who designed it, but it's this like idea that like if you put a rat in a cage and have it press a little button and every so often a treat will come down if it presses the little button, then they'll like be obsessed with a button. Like they'll keep pressing it because they never know when a little treat could come. It could come whenever. And then obviously the rats who had a button that never gave them treats, like they had no reason to press it at all. So yeah, it just like goes to show that we're all little rats at the end of the day, but we're unlearning. We're unlearning our rat behavior. And then, okay, this is the last email that I wanted to share. I actually wanted to read it out because there's like an interesting point in here that Jennifer said. So Jennifer is 23 years old or sorry, signed off as Jen. Okay. Jennifer is just the the government agent name. Jen (laughs) made a great point. Um, And okay, let me read it out. I want to be a writer eventually, but not wanting to use socials to build a platform for my work means publishers are a lot less likely to consider me. As a result, I might never be able to put my work out in the world the way I want to. And while I'm at peace with that, if it means staying true to myself, that's not an easy thing to acknowledge. I honestly long for a world where people spend more time at local art shows and poetry readings and where we create opportunities for unheard artists, writers, and thinkers to be heard. I try to attend events like that, but depending on where you live, they can be pretty rare. Basically, I think it's sad that the world values fame over quality work when it comes to what we look for in work, especially since fame is fickle and often only comes to those who fit desirable demographics. In my opinion, we desperately need platforms for the common person to dialogue and create that are outside of social media and exist in our own real spaces. Yeah, I literally have been thinking about this because in my acting program, my teacher was talking about how um, like casting directors will sometimes look at social media profiles now before they hire actors. Like if it's between two actors, a lot of the times, not every time I'm sure, but more times than we'd like to think, uh, they will go with the actor who has more of a social media following. Like I heard there was this one play, which I don't want to name any names because I'm not really sure if I was supposed to know about this, but they were between two actresses for this one part and they decided to go with the actress with the bigger social media following because they wanted more people to come to the show because this was a theater production and they wanted more young people specifically to be in attendance. So... It's always a marketing thing when it comes to these decisions and that's also a lot of the reasons why nepotism babies get hired, not just because like their parents may be the showrunners of the show or because like, you know, their parents are like calling in favors, but also just from a marketing standpoint, usually a nepotism baby, it's like if they share the last name of a famed celebrity, even if they don't have a social media following, though most of them do, it will like bring in... um, audiences because they're like, oh, I didn't know Bulobla's son or daughter was in acting. Um, Name familiarity means a lot in the industry. Unfortunately, 
And I guess it definitely makes sense that that would transcend over to like the publishing industry as well. I didn't really think about it that way. I guess because I don't really read new books too often. Like there are so many books out there and I'm just trying to get through the old books before I get to the new books. Um, and so I'm like not, you know, up to date with the new drops of the year, but it would make sense that like publicists would want authors to be marketing their books actively on Twitter, um, on Instagram. And I guess it doesn't hurt to have a social media platform because then people are probably like more interested in purchasing your book um, if they know who you are. Hence why we get so many god-awful books like written by influencers or I guess ghostwriters of influencers. I don't know, especially poetry books. I've read some really bad poetry books. And I hate to call poetry bad because I feel like poetry is supposed to speak from your heart. And who am I to judge the way someone's heart is speaking? But you know when you just read a bad poem? Like, it's an, it's an indescribable feeling. But, you know, I get it. I get it. It's like the name of the game. I just like totally agree here with Jen because I don't think your social media following has anything to do with your like artistic capabilities. And honestly, like I would argue like not being on social media, like not being addicted to social media as a user probably makes your art better because you just like have more time, more boredom that could spur creativity I genuinely believe my best ideas come from when I'm bored out of my mind when I literally have no choice but to become delusional for my own entertainment that's when I get the best ideas that's when I have like the sparks that come along and so part of the reason why I kind of like am trying to cap my social media usage is because I think creatively it doesn't really fulfill me to be plugged in all the time my other major obstacle right now is I've unfortunately become like a bit of a Twitter addict in the last week because <laughs> I've joined the Killian Murphy side of Twitter, which is really, really unfortunate for me um, because I don't know. I haven't really been in some kind of fandom since I was maybe like beginning of college and not because I don't look down on fandom or anything like I think is genuinely enjoyable. I just don't have the time to really invest in one particular fandom anymore. I mostly just like enjoy many things and I don't necessarily like dig myself deep into like one niche but unfortunately at the moment I'm in the Killian Murphy niche which is embarrassing to say the least because he's like an actual person and I also am like against the idea of celebrity worship anyway so this is like really a dissatisfying realization that I'm just a girl kicking my feet twirling my hair on Twitter looking at clips from the movie Red Eye and Disco Pigs, which I've never even even seen Disco Pigs. So I'm like a fake Killian Murphy fan. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just like, I saw a certain movie that I will not be naming um, on IMAX and it really just like virtually changed my entire perception of everything. I also think I've just been like more stressed out. So I've been needing something to fixate on. And this is like, unfortunately a fixation that I've landed on. The positive thing is I haven't been online browsing at all which is crazy because that's like what I used to do when I was bored. I would just like online browse on Etsy or eBay or – okay, here's a secret. A lot of people ask me where I shop vintage and 
I use this service called gem.app and I actually know the woman who um, created this website, but it is such a good website. This is not sponsored in any way, but it compiles, it's basically like a search engine. It's a Google search engine for eBay and Etsy and Vestier and the Real Real and a lot of like independent um, vintage stores. They don't search through Depop um, or Poshmark, I think, which are downsides because I know people use those a lot. But uh, for the most part, they cover a lot of websites and you can just search things like 1940s skirt and it'll mine all these different websites for you and pull them up and so you don't have to like look at all these different websites it just makes the process of shopping a lot easier and it's really unfortunate for me because I could spend hours on this thing but I thought I would share with you all and you can also filter you can filter by decade. You can filter by size. It's not always like the most perfect because, you know, vintage sizes back then don't really like correspond to modern day sizes. So it depends on like what the seller labeled the garments as. Like if they just put in measurements, usually you're not going to be able to catch those through the size search filter. Um, and then also for like time period, it's only if the seller specifies. So if they don't know, then nothing's going to come up. Even if you know, this skirt was from the 1940s. If the seller doesn't know it, then it's not going to show up in the results. But these are just minor things. Overall, it's like a really great service. I highly, highly recommend it. I have been trying to gatekeep it, but, you know, I'm feeling a little bit generous today. <laughs> okay, I swear I actually have something to say in this um, podcast episode, and it's not just going to be like me fangirling. But one more thing before I leave Killian Murphy to my Twitter timeline and spare you all. Um... I've watched a lot of his work, okay? Like, you know, I I watched Peaky Blinders. I watched virtually every Christopher Nolan film. I've watched Red Eye. Like, I've watched a lot of, like, niche movies that he just happens to be in. Um, and so I'm very familiar with his work. I have always thought he was, like, a very beautiful-looking man. But I also have never really, like, watched him on the big screen. And I think that changes everything. I have a theory that's actually just a taken theory from someone else. So I'm really sorry to the person who created this theory because this was not my original idea. But I think when you watch a movie and there's lots of close-ups of an actor's face, you form this personal connection with them because of that perceived closeness. Like even though it's through a screen, because you're seeing this face like experience emotions at such a detailed scope it makes you feel like you really know what they're going through I think it builds an empathetic connection and um in general it just like makes you think that you have a deeper connection with this character or with this actor I'm actually writing a little bit about this for a video that I have coming up at the end of August <laughs> but in my script I reference um the Jackie Kennedy White House tours and how this was like a major moment in history, not just because it's Jackie Kennedy or because it's the White House, but because in the 1960s, the whole television medium was really starting to like take off in ways that we take for granted now. And um, one of the reasons why Jackie Kennedy's White House tour resonated with so many audiences was because people were experiencing televisual intimacy. 
which makes you feel like through a television screen, you are more connected to that person because they are addressing you. They are looking at you. They are essentially talking to you, even though they're talking to a screen, really. Like they're not, they don't know you, but it's this like feeling that they are talking to you. And this was really new in the 1960s. Um, so that's one of the reasons why Jackie Kennedy's White House tour was so popular. Um, because if you actually look back and watch it, it is extremely awkward. It's very unsettling. It like doesn't make me feel comfortable or invited at all. But for the time, yes, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> it was a moment. All this is to say is that I watched censored beep noise on IMAX and there were many close-ups. There are many close-ups of Mr. Murphy's face and it it did something to me. It did something to my spirit. I also feel like, and this is something I posted on Twitter as a joke, but I think it is somewhat relevant because everyone's talking about how Killian Murphy is the hot girl of the month and that's like another thing that if you haven't really been on Twitter or TikTok, you might not understand but it's the baby girlification of grown men. Basically, the phenomenon, and this has been happening for years now, but it's like, I think it accelerated really during The Last of Us with Pedro Pascal, where women just like call grown men baby girls. And it's not like derogatory, it's not pejorative, it's not like denying them of their masculinity or whatever. It's just like a fun, cute word. And I read an article about it actually recently because I was like, this feels so fun to say. Like, I love calling men baby girls. Like, why is that scratching some kind of itch in my brain? Why is that making my rat brain so happy? And part of it is honestly, I think, because we're so used to looking down at femininity, right? Like, no boy wants to be called a girl in any way like that was used as an insult okay brief pause to maybe address the change in audio quality because that previous sentence was the last sentence I said before my computer completely crashed and thank god I had iCloud so I wasn't like a Carrie Bradshaw where people were addressing me and being like where's you where's your backup uh did you back up um because I did have an iCloud backup of my important documents not everything but the important stuff and so I still had the previous uh, audio rearing to go for this week. Thank God. But anyways, yeah, I just wanted to address that uh, it's been 24 hours since <laughs> the last sentence that I uttered and now it is um, Monday night. I finally got my laptop back from the Apple store and everything's fine. Like it's it's honestly a boring story. I'm sick of it. I just have no idea what happened. The technician didn't really give me a rundown about what happened. My computer just like shut off and now it's back on again and now I'm drinking a glass of wine and we're going to finish this episode. Okay, back to business. We were talking about baby girls and <laughs> – you know, another thing about like using the term girl, we never used the term girl to be like an inclusive term before um, recently, I would say. Like on the internet right now, I feel like everyone uses the term girl more inclusively, more gender neutrally. 
Whereas like beforehand and for many, many years, like the default for a gender neutral term was like guys. And so this article, they were kind of arguing how the term baby girl is this like reclamation in a way. There's this one uh, quote I'm going to read because they say it so much more succinctly than, than me. Yeah, Sylvia Sierra, who's an assistant professor of communication and rhetorical studies at Syracuse University, said uh, that there's negative valence attached to terms for women. With baby girl, you're not seeing that. It's actually being used in a positive way. Like you're highlighting favorable qualities in a man. And then Philip Hamilton, who is an editor of uh, Know Your Meme, iconic database, um, he said about it, it's like the opposite of what a typical sort of manly man kind of guy might want to be called, right? But online, that kind of works. Yeah, because toxic masculinity sucks. And honestly, who wants to be called a manly man when you can be called a baby girl? Um, so I'm really pro girl slang, girl speak. I do address it and its issues in an upcoming YouTube episode. But oh my god, I can't believe I'm calling my videos episodes now. That's disgusting. Okay. In a in an upcoming YouTube video, I will be addressing girl slang and both the proponents and the opponents for it. But personally for me, like I do really enjoy using it and I think it's really added to my appreciation of being a girl. And when I grew up, I mostly had friends who were girls. And to this day, I mostly have friends who are girls. Like Honestly, I don't have many straight male friends, but when I was younger, this was like something that made me very insecure for some reason. Like, I think I definitely had that misogyny programmed in my brain where I was like, I want to be friends with guys. Like, I'm not cool if I'm not friends with guys. And then freshman year of college, you know, I was breaking out into a new, new environment. No one knew who I was before. No one remembered any of the cringe things I did in high school or middle school. I felt like I had a new slate, right? A lot of people approach college like that, and I will not be apologizing for it. Um, so I became friends with this girl, obviously, because, you know, I see a girl and I'm like, let's be friends. And then we started being friends with this group of guys. And I wasn't like purposeful, I think. Like, I think they just thought she was really pretty, and that's why they kept inviting us around. Um, so already gross. And after like two months of hanging out with these guys, like almost every day, like eating lunch with them in the cafeteria, eating dinner or whatever, I was like, this is not fun. These guys are just not fun. Like one, okay, there's, there's a little context you need to know because they were also all French, like they were from France and they would constantly be speaking French around us so we felt very excluded in general because of that but then yeah also it's like they never had any input they didn't talk about anything that was interesting and I was like okay if this is what like friendships with straight men are like then I'm good frankly I am fully good like I am happy to only be friends with like women and non-men from this point forward and gay men. Like, they've never done me wrong. So, um, yeah. I just had this realization a little too late in life. Granted, I was only 19, but it felt a little late in my life 
And I don't know. Ever since, I've kind of just like thought of femininity as something that I really, really love um, because I felt like I missed out on really appreciating it as a girl. I did definitely like participate in girl hobbies. Like, you know, I played with dolls. I watched rom-coms. I did like the very stereotypically feminine thing. So I didn't think I missed out on that, but it was just like while I was enjoying all these activities, I felt somewhat guilty. And now I don't have that guilt anymore and it feels so good. And I can just like be really happy participating in girl stuff, doing girl things, calling men baby girls and, you know, I'm I'm living life. Okay, so now I want to discuss some fashion trends actually coming up because I don't talk that much about fashion trends on this podcast. Um, And okay, so I am subscribed to this newsletter that I highly recommend because um, it's just like so good. It's a newsletter that basically just like talks about current things in the culture, lots of links. Lots of articles that I talk about on this pod are like links that – are suggested in this newsletter and it's called After School by Casey Lewis. Um, Casey, if you're listening, I'm obsessed with you. Okay, so Casey was in her one of her recent newsletters. She kind of pulled out some trends that were happening among the youth, among Gen Z and millennials, and I thought I would share some and we can talk about it a little bit. So number one is Samba fatigue and the return of Converse, as predicted by Vogue. And the uh, proof that Converse are on the rise are that they've been worn by Tyler the Creator, Stella Maxwell, and Timothy Chalamet most recently. But, okay, honestly, I have owned both shoes in my lifetime because I feel like Sambas and Converse have been in fashion like multiple times within the last 10 to 20 years. Like they're very resistant pairs of shoes. And my issue is that I got Sambas because I did indoor field hockey in high school for a little bit. It it wasn't a big deal. Like it's not a part of my life. I think I did it for like <laughs> three months. So yeah, let's not fixate on that. But I got a pair of Sambas for that particular purpose. And then I got rid of my Sambas because I stopped playing field hockey. And then also, I don't know, people just didn't wear them anymore. And so like, I don't even know what happened to them because I was in high school. I also owned a pair of Converse. I've owned Converse like since middle school. And I have like sold my Converse. I've like donated my Converse. And then inevitably, like two years later, they'll come back in fashion. And I'm like, fuck, like I should have just kept my Converse. So I actually do think I might still have a pair of Converse at my mom's house. When I go back, I'm going to dig for them. But yeah, I think for these shoes, I'm very pro just holding on to them and wearing them even when they're not technically in style because the turnover rate for trends for sneakers is so rapid that it's like it almost feels like it's every other year Converse are in and when they're not in they're still an okay shoe to wear like no one's gonna clock you for wearing Converse and this is not a Converse sponsorship but it's just facts like no one's gonna clock you for wearing Converse so you might as well just wear them every year never stop wearing them 
I also noticed that when Sambas came back because of Miss Bella Hadid, I believe she's the one who really brought Sambas um, back into the fashion culture. They've been sold out. Like, I am very embarrassed whenever I admit that I follow trends, but I'm trying to not to be because I think even though I don't like the idea of trends, I'm also not going to blame myself for participating in them because trends are kind of like psyops. Everyone's wearing them and at a certain point, the image repetition makes you feel like you like them. And also like, again, I had this realization with Sambas and Converse where I'm like, they're going to come back in style again. So it's like, it's never a bad investment to buy a pair of sneakers as long as you genuinely like the look and not just because you want to try it out, um, but you're not really sure because everyone says it's popular. So anyway, so I was looking for Sambas and they've been sold out for months. Like I just kept going around telling everyone that we're in a Samba shortage because of Bella Hadid, love her. But like, are you for real? <laughs> I was like, what are the, what are the kids playing indoor soccer going to wear? So yeah, I never got a pair of Sambas. I'm still open to it. Like I don't have the ick for them, as I said, but yeah, they're sold out. And so I'm a little worried that that's going to happen for Converse. Um, and I also think it's just stupid because we've literally, like these are such popular shoes recreationally that it's so ridiculous that we live in a time now with TikTok. I feel like TikTok is the the main culprit where TikTok creates like a boom around a certain product and then it gets like sold out and you can't find it again for months. Like I don't understand the power of TikTok. My friend was just in a coffee shop the other day and okay, my friend, it's it's Ryan <laughs> who was a guest on this pod. <laughs> um Ryan was posting stories in this coffee shop and being like, oh my God, the vibes of this coffee shop are so bad now because someone on TikTok exposed this coffee shop and now there's like so many people, it's so difficult to get a seat. It's just become not a great place. And I feel like that's happened with so many restaurants, bars, coffee shops. The minute someone posts a TikTok, a viral TikTok about it, then the place gets like overrun, overcrowded and... um yeah, I mean, I guess it's good for business, but there's just something about TikTok that really speeds up the trend cycle, that really creates hype around certain places, certain products, that makes people feel like they have to participate in it. And I don't know if it's because of the reach that TikTok offers. Like, it's much harder to go viral on Instagram, especially if you're not like a celebrity. But then I guess, I don't know, I maybe because people associate TikTok with just having such a uh, hold on like cultural relevancy like everything that's popular tiktok knows about and tiktok also popularizes a lot of things and so i think because of that people view tiktok as a uh, more reputable place to get suggestions from to get advice from to uh, follow recommendations from I don't know. It's it's really strange because at the same time, a lot of these viral TikToks, I mean, every so often it's it's posted by someone who has a big following. But a lot of the times I've seen like, check out this coffee shop and it's posted by someone who doesn't have a lot of followers, which is not a problem. But it makes me wonder, I'm like, how what credibility does this person necessarily have? 
it's like people don't really care about the identity of the person anymore and they more so just take the video at face value, which is just very interesting because it's so different from how we interact with other platforms. Like I'm not going to follow advice from some Instagrammer who I never heard about. And I think even with YouTube, sure, there's like a lot of great YouTube videos that are specifically advice-based and I've watched them and I've been like, okay, but... I guess like I don't see as many YouTube videos like hyping up specific trends or places or products and it's because YouTube is long form and so it just takes a lot more effort I think for someone to uh, create an entire video on a coffee shop location. It's like you must really love that coffee shop <laughs> to to want to do that. Okay, and then the other um, – Trend. I don't want to read all of them because this is like paywalled and I believe in supporting Casey's work. And also she like writes really fun blurbs. So it's worth subscribing to. But uh, this trend is men's shorts are getting longer. And granted, I don't follow men's trends to a T because I mostly follow things that I myself am interested in that I can wear myself. I actually posted a um, survey-ish, like it's a very informal survey on my on my Twitter. I just asked a question and then people replied. <laughs> but I was wondering if your favorite historical era is related to the clothing that you personally like to wear or that you personally think is flattering on you. And I got like a mixed bag of responses, but it seems like most people skew yes, like their favorite historical era, specifically within the 20th century context, their favorite historical era within the 20th century is related to the kinds of silhouettes that they like and the kind of um, trends that they like to follow. And the reason I say 20th century is because previous to the 20th century, people used padded undergarments to kind of create a specific silhouette. Right. So if you were in the Victorian era, you would wear a corset that would snatch your waist to be the ideal like waist to hip to bust ratio of the time versus now it's like if you don't fit into the particular silhouette that's trendy, it's kind of like shit out of luck because bodies are trends now. So for example, like in the early 2000s, it was really, really trendy to have like a flat stomach and arguably it's trendy again now because of the rise of low-waist jeans coming back. Um, but anyways, in the 2000s, it was really trendy to have a flat stomach. But if you didn't have a flat stomach, you couldn't do anything about it because the whole point was to show off like your bare torso. So it's not like you could somehow flatten it with an undergarment. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of 20th century trends are difficult in that sense, which is also why a lot of like fashion historians and my friends think it's so funny whenever corset discourse comes around and people talk about how corsets were like so bad for your health and whatnot and they don't pay attention to the fact that like nowadays people still do feel the need to mold their bodies except it's arguably unhealthier to go through drastic weight loss, like to go through Ozempic, to spend hours wearing Spanx than it was to like wear a corset that isn't tight-laced, as most of them usually weren't. Uh, but yeah, so 
needless to say, I'm also someone who pays attention to what I like to wear and I put most of my research into what I personally like versus, you know, I guess researching menswear. But honestly, that might change because I'm going through a phase where I really do want to start wearing menswear. I think it's just because I haven't been able to get a tailored suit that actually looks good on me. And especially being a petite person, I do have a complex where I'm like, I think I look like a little boy. Um, but maybe with the right tailoring, I'll enter my menswear era. So this menswear trend, shorts are getting longer, which I'm not like super surprised about because we've been kind of in this like 90s, early 2000s revival for a little bit now. And in the 90s, like, Baggy shorts were in for everyone. And you even see that now with uh, women's wear trends. Everyone's been selling these sporty baggy shorts. Um, and a lot of girls in the Lower East Side have been rocking them. Actually, Adidas just uh, marketed these baggy shorts that were also lacy. Like they were kind of a cross between like sportswear and uh, lingerie-esque uh, details and they were being made fun of by a certain troop on Twitter but other people were like yes so excited definitely gonna buy these so I, I'm not like super super surprised actually by the longer shorts coming back in style but this one person uh James Harris he's the co-host of the pod throwing fits he said that Part of the reason why these longer shorts are coming back into menswear is because of the oversaturation of like shorter shorts. And now, rather than rocking shorter shorts to show that you're a hot baby girl, you're wearing like lacy tops or like just like sluttier tops. He actually said the sluttiness has moved north. <laughs> and um, has pointed to the surge of lace shirts and crop tops among, um, you know, young men in New York and L.A. Also another reason why people are moving away from short shorts is because the look is being associated with white male frat boys, and so obviously none of us want to be emulating that. I don't blame anyone for moving as far away from that uh, <laughs> identity as possible. Okay, the last thing I want to quickly mention, because I just read this article and I thought it was so funny, is that apparently because of the strikes, the SAG-AFRA and WGA strikes, a lot of people in these industries have been flocking to plastic surgeon offices to get new faces, um, which <laughs> I don't know. I have a complicated relationship with plastic surgery in the sense that I'm like constantly oscillating between like this is this person's right to do whatever they want with their face and you know it's it's not for anyone to really judge the kind of issues that they're going with and then also between like the other take which is that oh they are contributing to beauty trends as a platformed individual and if everyone is doing that then it ends up being like it ends up having like a negative net effect for like the rest of the population. Still trying to figure out my position. Um, but and I and I think it could be both. I think it can be one of those nuanced things where it's like, yeah, individually we all can do whatever we want, but societally, this is bad. 
Anyways, because the strikes are happening for God knows how long, I talked to one of my friends who is in the industry and she predicts that it will wrap up around September, but I've also read articles that are like it's going to go until January. SAG is definitely not going to back down. Um, I don't know many people in the WGA, but I think that right now the executives have said some pretty gnarly things about the WGA. Like, they are not willing to come to the table to negotiate and they uh, don't care if people start losing their houses or becoming homeless, which is really, really fucked. I'm honestly a little bit more worried about the writers than I am about the actors because people are familiar with actors, more so than writers. Like, actors are public-facing and a lot of really, really wealthy people are in SAG-AFRA. Like, basically every Hollywood actor is in SAG-AFRA. And these really big Hollywood players are also the ones that are driving people to go watch a movie. So if you have someone like, I don't know, I like, my brain just short-circuited. I'm like, who's an actor? Um, Zendaya. (laughs) So if you have someone like Zendaya who is, not allowed because of her union to advertise, like to market, to do appearances, to promote a movie, then you're not going to make a lot of money on that movie. That's just like the reality of the situation. Like a lot of actors do a lot of promotional work to get people into these theaters and to get people streaming. And unfortunately, writers don't have that same kind of leverage. Like they are so, so important in the industry and we would be getting really shitty TV shows, but I think a lot of studios executives don't see them as necessary as actors in terms of like bringing money into the studio system, which is really, really fucked. And so, yeah, I'm a little concerned about the writers and how they're going to do at the end of this. And I know that like you know, SAG-AFRA and WGA and the DGA, they're all like, they're different unions, but I feel like what would be ideal is if they all kind of like had a united front and a kind of like pact in that sense. I mean, again, like I don't, I don't know what it takes to unionize. I'm not like a union leader. I don't know how complicated that would be or the downsides of what that would be. But like, I feel like at this point, strength is really in the numbers. Um, but anyway, back to this, <laughs> back to this article about how everyone's getting plastic surgery. Um, so they interview this one plastic surgeon. Her name is Dr. Chang. And she said that like, I mean, obviously part of the reason why so many people are rushing is because they know that they're not going to have work for at least like a couple months. And so they have extra time for recovery. This is also why there was like a huge plastic surgery boom during COVID, Um, because people were one looking at their faces way more often on zoom and therefore really like picking apart their own faces. And then two, they didn't need to go to the office. And so they had that extra time for recovery. Probably the most interesting thing about this article though, is that they talk about Paris Hilton and she has this hyperbaric oxygen chamber that I guess is like well known among the Hollywood elite because, um, this other, plastic surgeon says that Paris Hilton like hosts like a g- groups of people at a time to recover in her hyperbaric oxygen chamber because I guess like the way that the process works 
your recovery time is like sped up if you have access to this oxygen chamber. Um, and because Paris has a really big one that accommodates like four people, it's become like a sort of social function at the same time. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's also ridiculous at the end of the day. <laughs> okay, y'all. This is the end of this video. I, the end of this video. Fuck. That's when I know I'm tired. Okay, this is the end of the podcast episode. I actually did record a video earlier today, right after I got home from um, the uh, Apple store. So this is the end of the episode. I'm getting very tired. And I hope that despite the chaos and the random break and audio switch up that you had a fun time talking with me, listening to me, like, I'm going to be real. You're listening to me. Um, but I do read emails. So I have like read all the ones that people send in and they're really lovely. And yeah, I'm really, really happy for someone who had a shitty day. I think it's the wine. The wine is getting to me. Okay. Thank you all so much. Have a good rest of your day. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. This episode was edited by Sophie Carter Cover art is by Lindsay Mintz. Music is by Olivia Martinez. And the podcast is part of the Audio Boom Network. Hey.